Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of Source Financia, host of the Podcast, and the host of the Source Financia YouTube channel. At this stage, by the time this episode comes out, I think I should be in Hong Kong doing a speech. Should I? Yeah, I would have either done the speech. Yeah, I would have. Okay, I would have done the speech at this stage. I'm pre-recording, so you know you have to see a little bit of how, how the. You know the behind the scenes of how the how the sauce is made. Um, wanted to make sure that I did these intros before I started traveling because you know when I travel, like I'm going into different time zones, I'm all over the place. Like I'm going to three, four different countries. Just wanted to make sure I got these done, and I'm not carrying my main podcast mic, so quality wise, uh, just want to make sure that you guys had this. Um, you know, so you hear my soothing voice at the beginning of each episode. All right, so this is part two of the Prodigy game. ODM retrospective or the brand operation. Um, I'm not going to do a deep introduction because if you haven't listened to part one, I think you should go back and listen to part one because it's not, this is not going to make any sense. If you listen to part two, you're going to be jumping into the middle of a story and uh, the context around what happened is just going to be non existent and you won't. I mean, you might take some lessons, but it, it just doesn't make sense to listen to it like this. So listen to part one. In part one, we talked about you know, how the relationship developed. We talked about the year and a half to two years, the year and a half of development to get the first toy up to scratch. In part two, we talk about the main factory that we worked with, how we developed the workflow, how we went from a year and a half of development for one product to four to to six months for four products, and then another four months for another four products. And this is these are not white label products. This is original design. There's designers, engineers, CAD files, sampling, prototypes, 3D printing, like test runs for mass production, like a lot of different things that just doesn't go into a normal white label mass production. And I think a big part that a big lesson to be learned in this episode was the workflow that not only that we developed with our supplier for developing these products, but the workflow that that Prodigy and Sourcefine Asia developed um, how we were communicating, how Prodigy would communicate things to us, that we would communicate to the factories, and how we were communicating things from the factory to Prodigy and vice versa. It was, you know, we had um, developed quite a good system, and it's again one of the systems that I we use up to today. I mean, obviously, we've expanded on these things and we have more experience, but. It's just interesting to listen to how, you know, when you work very closely with a client at the beginning of your business, a lot of the feedback, a lot of the ideas that your clients have is what becomes the DNA uh, of your company. So that's pretty much what I think part two is all about. So without further ado, enjoy. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Discuss, I guess, at this how we made the supply chain more efficient. Um, working with Nancy and, and her team, I think we left off. Uh, we left off saying that we just we had a good relationship with the new factory, right? And we were making the new mold. Mm-hmm. So, yep, and we came to a price point that was reasonable on both ends. Yeah, and I think the first time around, we paid for like a fast mold, right? Like I think it was a, it was a well, not a fast mold, but we we paid for them to ex- to expedite the process. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, that's the thing when near our production, every time we had to do production uh, on the first run too, we noticed that we had to pump in a lot of overtime, um, including for the molds, because we often didn't manage our timeline well because we didn't know how long things would take on that first run. So on that first mold, we did pay quite a bit of overtime to get that done faster. But I think it was worth it in the end. So some of the key differences with the final factory that we worked with was. I noticed that our salesperson, Nancy, she obviously had a ton of experience um, working with toys and stuff like that. She'd worked with Disney, Walmart, like some of the, with Hasbro, like some of the biggest brands. And then one question I asked her, which was like a a huge requirement for me um, in order for us to work with them was whether she was actually going to be involved in the day-to-day of uh, managing of the production. 
And she said, yeah, she's, she's involved with any project she takes on. She's the one who's like checking on the production. Um, obviously, she has some help and stuff like that, but she's the one who's physically going to check on the production. She's the one who's talking to the, you know, the production manager and the engineers and communicating with us via email. Sometimes that became an issue you know, with updates because she was extremely busy. But mm-hmm. it was important for you know somebody of her level of experience to be able to be the one who's checking on the production, which was what was missing with with Huami. Um, and mm-hmm. then with SRX, there was just like a lack of response. Um, you know, I don't I don't even know if Dowsett was really even checking on anything really. Um, so that was a big thing. And then also the engineering team that when we sat down with them, you know, they were able to look at. They were without us telling them all the issues that we had with the the, the mold and, and the, the the toys. They were able to identify all of the various problems that we had and give us you know an idea of how they would fix them. So that was a, that was such, mm-hmm. that was such a yeah. key thing. Was without that, that did happen. Yeah, without us even explaining to them, they knew what was wrong with it, what was wrong with the product, and and they explained how they would fix it. And another thing that I just remembered was. Part of the thing with Huame was we'd given Huame a target per unit cost. And they said part of the reason why the toys weren't as good or they didn't pay attention to toys is because we wanted this certain per unit cost, which kind of qualified it as a lower quality product. So then when we went to the new factory, the final factory, we told them, hey, like, quote us what you think is fair because we want to make a really high quality product and I think they even I think they'd adjusted the quote because I think they we told them what what our pre-unit cost was and then when we prompted them to like kind of reevaluate they they increased the pre-unit cost slightly. So yeah, because uh they undercharged us the first time around, which yep. I mean was okay for me. But um I think also the other thing that I liked um working with this factory or um with Nancy specifically is that they kind of treated the product like as if it was a partnership in terms yep. of like our success is their success. So they want to make sure that it's a product that they can represent their company well with as well. Because especially if it's going to an international market, um, it might go and come under more scrutiny in terms of if things go bad, like where did it come from, et cetera. Maybe that could have been a factor of it. Yeah. But for sure, like when I think that's what prompted them to make sure that the product was up to their standards and our standards, especially. And they were able to come up with, like you said, with those fixes, a suggestion for fixes before we even like asked them about it. Yeah, and actually, you just reminded me of something important. Um, so we were their first North American client. So that, and that's that's fu- it's funny because a lot of times I will tell people to work with factories that are experienced with exporting to their market, but at the same time, there is an advantage to that because they really wanted. A North American client, so they could open up their marketing to North America and get more customers in North America. So they were looking at you guys and saying, you know, let's really hit this out of the park, even though we're not going to make that much money on the first order. Let's make a really high quality product and hopefully they'll come back. But at the same time, we'll have this, you know, really high quality toy that we can then point to if we get another inquiry from from the US or Canada. You know? mm-hmm. So that, that's also, that can be an advantage. So if you find a factory that's Making really high quality products, working with big brands, but they're let's say because I think uh, you know Nancy was uh, their biggest clients were in Japan. Japan also has a really high level of standards when it comes to toys, so you know it does translate to the North American market. Of course, there's going to be some requirements that are different, and it's your responsibility to to kind of figure out what that is with a little bit of guidance from the factory, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if they've never exported to your country, if they're making the equivalent quality for other countries, if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think what else happened that we liked that was quite remarkable with them? Oh, it was funny uh, when we gave them their, uh, we give them our safety standards. They're yeah. saying how our, our safety standard was a bit too ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but even despite that, they still went ahead and made sure that it met those standards because it was um, our main request, and because it was so important for us. Uh, like ultimately, like sure, I guess we can handle um, lower quality, not necessarily lower quality, but like less or I should say weaker toys. And that's still not correct because even half the strength of our toys would still be double the standards. But um, if we did that, then. Um, we would be able to get higher yields and lower price points, but because 
we wanted to make sure that we had that we wanted to hit those standards. They just adjust the price accordingly to match the yield that they probably would get. And again, that's kind of like a negotiation that we had to go through to make sure that it matched our expectations and we're okay with the price point. It wasn't too bad or too far off from what we were willing to pay. Yeah, I think um, one of the other, going back to the quality standards, I think one of the things that impressed us as well was um, when we, we told them, hey, we want to do a during production inspection to avoid some of the issues that we had with the previous production. And then, you know, obviously we're doing a final random inspection. Before we did our during production inspection, they did their own internal drop test and pull test. And, and then they told us, yeah. they kind of gave us the results of that. So I think that was one of the, the things where we were like, oh, actually they're, they're performing their own drop test and pull test, which was the first time that, you know, any of the, any, it was the first time that any of the factories had done that. Um, so that was pretty impressive. And of course, when we did our drop test and pull test, it, the, the product was, was good. And one of the main issues we had with the previous mold, I think I've talked about this before, but um, uh, uh, we can talk about it more in depth is there was a, uh, what do you call it? I think it was like indentation on some of the smaller parts. What's, what's the, te- oh, yeah. the technical term? I forget. Yeah. Cav- cavitation. Yeah. There's cavitation on, on some of the smaller parts on, so big hex, if you Google the toy, it has all these hexagons, like gold, small hexagons, like on the shoulder and on the back and stuff like that. And those individual pieces are really small. So when you when you work with PVC, um, PVC tends to have a lot of deformations, especially with the smaller parts. And that was something that the previous two factories were never really able to to fix. And you know when we started working with these guys, you know the first pieces that we got off of the mold were clearly much better than we'd ever had before and mm-hmm. and that was like a that was a, a big thing i think it was a, probably one of our biggest concerns besides the actual um besides the you know it passing the pull test and and drop test was yeah exactly whether whether we were going to have the you know, the same cavitation like we had before not only that like the paint job too um the quality of or the clean lines that we wanted yeah. uh, on the paint job for the masks yeah, and then even yeah, matte. I think the matte red versus the glossy gold on Big Hex. Yeah, like I, I think the previous factory had had made the the red glossy, or was it not glossy? I don't I don't remember what that it was. Meant. It was not glossy. They made it matte. But uh, what ended up happening is uh, because we were trying to get a aggressive price point, they started coming up with more clever ways to minimize costs on both ends. So. We end up switching to make the PVC the main color that we want to paint, et cetera. So it saves them steps and paint, painting steps, et cetera. Yeah. So they so, pre, they um, pre-mix the the PVC with with um with red. Um, yeah. So so that saved saved a lot of uh, time and money. Exactly. So I mean, it might have been an industry standard thing, but it's not something that we requested from the onset. Yeah. But then um, the fact that they came up proactively to kind of come with that. It is funny now was... because it, it is it is pretty common. Like <laughs> when, yeah, when, yeah. when I, because I've dealt with other, obviously I've dealt with quite a few um, injection molded pieces at this stage. And it's like, yeah, if, if the main color of the product is, is black or whatever it is, then usually they'll pre mix it. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. And, Where were you back then? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> well, that's part of it. Is like you want to work with a with a factory that um, is is really professional and experienced, and, and yeah. a salesperson who can give you suggestions because they knew that you know we weren't that experienced, so they kind of guided us and and gave us a lot of awesome suggestions for design and. And you know yeah. ways to save money on the production process, and even just like them saying that they had to restructure the entire mold to make it safer. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of solutions that they came up with, which I think is extremely important when you're working on yeah. a yeah. original design. Yeah, and you have to also keep in mind that uh, making toys specifically or um, something like toys is a custom design every time because it's very unique to how it's shaped. Unlike electronics, it's um, like the industry standards for electronics, how they're manufactured, like a pad will be machined or um, etched the same way for all pads that you make, for example, or all the traces you make on electronics. Um, But when it comes to toys, there's a million different ways you can produce that same effect. And um, finding the best one, you want to make sure that you come to the right solution that will make sure that it minimizes costs and and, um, give you the right quality of finish. So uh, we finally produced the, a successful mass production of Big Hex in what? Mm-hmm. Was it May or uh, November? 
November. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so we finished our first batch of ten thousand units uh, in May, ready to be sold May seventeenth. And that was an actually interesting thing what we did where we already started selling the um, toys before we actually had them in warehouse so mm-hmm. that we can start increasing our time frame of like time sale time frame. And it was kind of a risky thing to do, but obviously it worked out in the end uh, where the factory or yeah, that factory managed to ship it out on time. Everything went smoothly. Uh, Rico, I remember you even went there on site to make sure that all those boxes were loaded on the truck. Yeah, the first, I recall you actually helped them move the boxes onto the truck yeah, as well. The first, yeah, the first. Uh, no, I just took pictures of me holding boxes. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. And then you put it back down on the ground. Yeah, and put and it I was just truck. like, yeah, okay, you, you got it. We good. How many pictures you get? All right, all right hey, you guys. Yeah. I'm gonna go out and listen to some podcasts. Um, <laughs> but no, no, I did. I did go down. Um, I remember. It, uh, I think you and Rohan had, had asked me to go. And it made sense considering that this was a year of development and dealing with factories. And then this was the third factory and two mass productions, one failed, like, you know, two separate molds. I think at this stage, you guys had invested quite a bit of money into the project. So um, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, the the guys were handling everything with care. And then we had some specific things because you were shipping some boxes to the U.S., uh, to two separate warehouses, right? To the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. So that was another thing, was making sure that they were labeled correctly and, and the right amount of boxes were going to the right places. So, um, yeah, definitely had to go down for that, which, which was good. And, you know, everything, yeah. everything worked out. Talk to me about when you get that first mass production done and you start selling the products and the products are now physically in Canada and the U.S. And, you know, it's, it's after a year of... of, of uh, for you, it was over a year of of, of this turmoil. Um, how did that yeah. feel like? What was going on in the office? Yeah, it was so relieving, and it was like it was kind of like a weight off your shoulder because it's kind of it feels like it's the end of that whole chapter. But then I actually came to a point where I was actually starting to get sick and tired of seeing the same toys, same like packaging <laughs> box and stuff. But then knowing that it actually had an end, end goal, X in your dreams, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it, but it's not the good big hex. It's all the defective yeah, big hexes, you know. <laughs> no, no cavitations. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, but like uh, even when we launched on our first day, um, it, yeah, I just I guess it wasn't until I saw that the first order was shipped or knowing that it was in the warehouse, it was until then I actually felt it was like completely over. But knowing that there's people who actually started buying the toys mm-hmm. uh, in our online store, that was like, I kind of I kind of got obsessed about it because every like, uh, I was supposed to be working that day, don't tell Rohan, but I was kind of refreshing the Shopify um, dashboard to see like how many people are buying and like, it's like, wow, these people don't even know what this is yet and they're already like buying them. And, yeah. and so it's kind of like, it shows in, in terms of Prodigy and it's and our brand, like they already trust us so much that you know, anything we put up, they'll buy it, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But then there's that like kind of worry of like, oh man, I hope they get in. I hope all that effort we put is worth it because like we, I hope it doesn't break. I hope nothing like goes wrong. And so there is still like, although there's like that relief that it's, we finished, it's still like actually the beginning of another phase of actually delivering the product and making sure the customers are happy with it. Because uh, we didn't even get to the part of thinking of like, well, what if there are actually defects that slip by? Of course there are going to be, but like what percentage of it is going to, be defective and then um how we're going to handle those etc it's like growing pains that we had to kind of go through but uh yeah like in may like when we did our first shipment it was pure elation and uh, i mean one one cool thing for me was seeing the unboxing videos that the kids had oh yeah yeah that was uh, that was pretty awesome <laughs> yeah actually a funny story about quality there's one youtube video i saw of a kid uh showing big hex and his half his face was half ripped off. I was like, what? How does this happen? I was freaking out. And then uh, like a few minutes later into the video, he's like, oh, don't mind Big Hex's face. Uh, my dog bit his face off. I was like, oh, okay, good. We didn't say it was like dog safe. It was just children safe, you know? Yeah. So, so it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So uh, yeah, YouTube videos. It's interesting to see kids' reactions to it. It's like, it's kind of surreal to see people react to your product. It's like I made that and like some person that you would never have met in a million years is experiencing something that you've produced. And it's actually, it's, I don't know, it's, I don't know if humbling is the right word, but it's like makes you feel 
like you're doing something worthwhile in the world. You yeah. Know? Well, I, humbling is one way to put it, but this is the way I, I used to think about it. Was like, <laughs> so I, I used to think about that space. It's like one year of development, three different factories, uh, you know, multiple during production inspections, final random inspections, tens of thousands of dollars invested, like oh, yeah. probably. 40, 50, 60, 100 people who have worked on the project, shipping, logistics, all that stuff. And then it's going to end up like some kid's going to throw it in the toilet. (laughs) Like, Like, you know what I mean? Like, just the perspective of like all this work that goes into it. And then there's going to be like a kid's dog that just bites the head off of one big head. The head off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then they're like, oh, it's a broken toy. All right, throw it out. Yeah. Yeah, I never. Oh, thanks for putting that perspective in my head. Thanks. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, we 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 value, like we know all the work that got put into it, but it's like, you know, the kids have no idea. Because I mean, I used to have toys like that where it's like, I just, I had this toy and I fucking threw it everywhere or, you know, it fell in the toilet or I broke it on purpose, like things like that. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. But if you only knew the amount of work that goes into developing one of those. So, um, so, so you, there's the relief, the the kids are buying the toys. And then I remember uh, you guys came back to us and said, you know, we want to we wanna do a, a, another order. But then at the same time, you said, hey, we're also thinking about launching um, four toys simultaneously. So can you, can you talk about the thought process behind that after having, you know, one year of, of, of development to then decide to go like, let's go and, you know, bang out four toys and so, yeah, I wouldn't say it was, it's because we had sunk cost and we want to recoup it. It'd be more like, I, I guess our initial goal was to figure out what the costs are and if it could it be profitable or is there a market for it? Are kids enjoying uh, what we already produced? And it seems to have been the case. So by June, uh, June, July timeframe, we decided that, yeah, we should probably go ahead and pull the trigger on starting another four more toys to add to this. And it's kind of weird because... Like you kind of look at all these shows or um, I don't know, like if you look at Overwatch, the, you have all these characters, you know, if you know Overwatch yep. game by Blizzard. Yeah. yeah. So like um, all the characters in there, they just make them. But then in terms of storyline, there's no storyline they develop. It's only after they make the characters like, oh, how do they all tie in? And so, um, but the way they develop it, so rich in like history of like, why did it happen and whatever. But when we made our own toys, it opened my eyes to that whole process too, because we just made our own toys and like, uh, we didn't really put thought into the like backstory of it and everything. But you see these kids, they write, like they write comments on these like Wikipedias about our toys saying like, oh, I think this one is doing this and that one. And they already have their theories and like, yeah, we actually had no idea what they're doing or what they are. (laughs) So it's, I, I thought it was funny, but anyway, so yeah, back to your question about, so deciding to pull the trigger on the other toys was relatively easy because we didn't think too much about the downstream economics of it. We just want to make sure it's profitable as a unit cost basis. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in that moment, we were like, uh, it, it's kind of like we pre-triggered ourselves to know that uh, if Big Hex is selling well and we're able to turn out profit based on all the economics of it, then making the four more toys, it seems pretty logical because the idea is to increase or raise the payment wall, I think is what the term is. Like effectively, the amount one user can pay for, like if we have one really engaged user, what's the most they can buy yeah, uh, from us? Uh, like payment ceiling? No, nah, there's customer, customer something, lifetime value. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think lifetime value is like an average of all users and revenue. No, made, but, but it's like, I it's mean, like, um, uh, it's something customer or whatever, but it's like it's like yeah. If you look, for example, you have your the kids paying for the subscription or the add-ons in, in in the game, and then if they can buy multiple toys as well, it's increasing the amount of money each person spends. Um, yeah, exactly. Guys, which anyways, a lifetime. I think it's lifetime value. But anyways, yeah. Good thing this is in a, a podcast on <laughs> marketing and economics. Yeah. And, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll Google it as you're speaking. <laughs> yeah, cool, yeah. cool. All right. So, um, yeah, so the four epics. So, yeah, again, so it was easy to trigger those um, to start working on those. But the thing is, we didn't want to do any pre-production work on it until we were sure about Big Hex. So uh, the moment we had that decision made, so I guess uh, June 2016, which is like only a month after we launched our big hex, we already started working on the pre-production for that stuff. So I guess in the meantime, like you said, we did ask for another batch of big hex, of and we called that batch the July batch. Uh-huh. 
And it's at that moment we actually started talking about um, pre-production with our factory as well to see how much it would cost to make all those. Uh, what's the timeline? Can they even do it? Because obviously, as we've done in the past, we want our deadline to be Christmas of 2016. So we took a year, over a year, well, at least for me, it was a year and a half working on Big Hex and um, working on this next set of four of toys. We're trying to get this done in like six, seven months. And so it was like a lot of stress. I even really have too much time to enjoy that Big Hex release, like you mentioned or asked about. So, um, yeah, so we kind of jumped right into the next production um, cycle of the new four epics. Yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty quick. I feel like, you know, between when when you guys received the products and stuff, I feel like it was maybe like a, a, a month or two to three weeks before before you came back to us and said that you're ready to place another order and, and start working on on four new new products as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the this time around with the four new toys, we already knew how to communicate and talk to the factory. We knew what our existing issues were. We kind of had an understanding of what uh, the toy, like we kind of had an equation of how to make the toys. So we kind of uh, repeated that same equation. Like we're going to make the toys with these. We were going to roughly use the same amount of colors. Um, same, since we're replicating or we want to keep the style of the toy, it's very similar. It is actually very important for you to keep that same formula. Otherwise, if you add like more detailed painting, then it's going to lose that uh, uniformity with the other products. Mm -hmm. So that was actually kind of a benefit to make sure we use the same process and workflow. Um, so knowing that we had more, uh, we had to kind of give more space for all the safety features we want to include. Um, we kind of built that into our, our model. We kind of redesigned uh, how we did the packaging too at that point because we want to make sure the the toy was more secured within the packaging because that's also kind of important for safety because if it's not safely secured in the box, it's going to jostle around and have pre like wear and tear on the toy um, before this user even gets it. So that's kind of like shortening the lifetime of that toy. So packaging is actually kind of important to work on as well. And um, so don't ignore that. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a good point to bring up. Is like a lot of people don't really focus on on packaging, but you know, it is important because it's the safety of the product. And then there are ways that you can restructure packaging, restructure your design to make it less expensive as well. Um, so, mm -hmm. so I think people should, after your first one or two orders, you start trying to re-examine that, especially for people that are shipping products into you know warehouses like Amazon and. Things like that, like I mean, you changing the structure of your packaging or the size of your packaging could lower your warehousing fees. Um, it could be quite significant, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, like, um, it's also like packaging is there to protect your product. Yeah. So, think of it kind of like insurance, yeah. because if you even for your master cartons, if you get cheap master cartons, then on shipping, if they all get dinged, then you lose a lot of your product uh, because those packages or you know those items inside get damaged, and so you can't sell them anymore. So yeah, it's. I think it's kind of worthwhile to make sure you invest in that packaging solution. It's either going back to the thing we're trying to. It's either customer lifetime value or average customer spend. <laughs> yeah, I think average customer spend could be it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, either either represents the same thing. But yeah, can you, thanks for looking into that. Can you break down the workflow that we had uh, between? So. You know, with you guys internally discussing design, then working with your designer, then you know, sending us the information, us translating it, and then you know, the factory and the feedback. Can you kind of uh, break down what the what that workflow was? Um, I, I mean, I guess you kind of explained it all there. It was, uh, but effectively, what we wanted to do to make sure there's minimal miscommunication, we want to ensure that the contracts were that we had overall in general or anything we had that was meaningful to be legally binding was also uh, written in Chinese so that they would understand their end. And then you guys would be interpreting to make sure that it made sense for both parties um, as it's written in English on our mm -hmm. end. And so um, I think that was one big thing I think that allowed us to be more confident in terms of understanding if the other party knows what we're talking about. Because um, if we say certain timelines and they think a date represents something else, then that's obviously not good for anyone. Um, but in terms of actual producing the product, I, I guess that is part of producing the product because before we even start designing the fact that the molds, et cetera, we do the 
all that pre-production discussion and negotiation on how much it would cost because obviously we won't want them to open the mold on something that's going to be expensive. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, during that contract development phase, I'm not sure if that's typical of the industry, but we do spend a lot of time kind of doing pre-production development and um, design review, I guess, because we already have our 2D sketches from our 2D artists who won't really be spending too much time on like the final look of it because they wanted to see general structure. What is that going to look like for the toy? And we kind of talk back and forth week over week. I, I guess not even week over week. It was like every, like the turnaround would be like one or two days where yeah. we'd submit one of our initial drawings. You guys would kind of translate anything that we need or make sure that I'd go jump on a call with you to make sure that you understand what we're, what the key points or features we're looking for in our product. And then you'd convey that to Nancy you guys would negotiate, talk back and forth. And uh, I think um, the way you you specifically were talking back to me about, uh, or not talking back, but like responding to my comments, it seems like you really understood the problems that I was looking for or trying to address uh, such that you can paraphrase or rehash out the issues with Nancy in a deeper level to make sure that you guys can have enough context of the issue to develop a solution so that you can bring it back to me and work from there because obviously some counter options might not work because there's something that we really wanted like the hexes hexagons on um big hex so yeah the 2d art would go back and forth until we kind of got to a design that we think would look good that happened internally too in terms of like what we think represents a prodigy product and then we go to the 3d artists where they do the first mock 3d modeling of what we drew in 2d I would give my first feedback of what I think probably won't work and also what I think would work stylistically with um, our product or our existing toy or um, the game's overall theme, considering that he was third party or like he was a third party um, hire. And then um, at that point, I would be able to 3D print it in-house to look at what it looks like in my hand. Does anything look too thin? Does anything look too sharp? Because in 3D models, they look huge if you zoom in and look nice and rounded. But when you print it out, it's actually like only a millimeter thin and it can either snap or it could cut you or something. Um, So then I'd immediately make huge tweaks on what I think from what I learned from Big Hex would be appropriate to make sure it's uh, minimized. And then so 3D artists would make revisions on that. And then finally, I'd make my own final pass on what was done by 3D artists. So it's like two passes by now. And then I would send that over finally to Rico, who would then send it to Nancy. Of course, when I send it to Rico, we obviously do our review discussions on like what are the key points and such that we want to discuss. Yeah, we we had we had like a weekly a weekly call. Yeah, um, it was I think it was Monday evenings, uh, my time, and then uh, that would have been that would have been Monday morning your time, and uh, kind of just like discussed you know the, the the steps for that week and any any major design. Um, issues and, and things like that, and then and then, you know, that would allow us to have some framework when we're dealing with 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 champion. Um, and then, of course, if there's any smaller things that we need to, we could hop on a call yeah. during the week, or we could go back and forth via you know uh, Google Docs or, or WeChat. Yeah, like before, I used to have to stay up pretty late to sync with the suppliers because they wouldn't stay up late to meet with we with me. So it was kind of good that. I was able to meet with Rico or SFA um, to kind of have those meetings at a time that's more convenient for um, for our work schedules. And um, yeah, so it, it kind of worked out um, that way. It came to a point, though, where we did have to, or where I did stay up late to have calls with, uh, not calls, but I stayed up late just to be on standby when we did our QA, our QC sessions with the toys, but not because I had to, but because just in case, because they're so critical to make sure that if there's decisions to be made, I can be there to make it. But of all the times I had to do it, uh, SFA was able to relate the correct course of action to me, The where I was able to be like, yeah, that, that's the right thing to do. Or um, So like in retrospect, I may have not needed to stay up late, but obviously if you need to have the peace of mind, it does obviously help to stay up <laughs> to make sure that... Mm-hmm. The QA goes well. So so yeah. Um, so then, uh, go ahead. Uh, so after the 3D model has been sent to Nancy, she obviously does her initial scrutiny on it, and they immediately say this can't be done. And then you, when it comes back to me, I'm like, nah, I really want this. Like it has to be done. 
So then they kind of be like, well, it's going to up the price. And then, so that's where the little dancing was, starts to happen. That was the, that was the, probably the most difficult part of, part of the project was just trying to get um, one, them to agree to certain design, uh, certain design aspects, and then also keeping it within a certain price range. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, that was pretty difficult to, to navigate. So one thing I um, noticed with working with Chinese factories is that uh, their way of conducting business is very different from it with the way it is in North America. Uh, I feel like in North America, you could pick, typically ask what the bill of materials, materials or you can have a breakdown of what the costings come from such that it's kind of uh, so such that you can rationalize how the price comes to, to be. So like, you know, they obviously have to make a profit. So all those details are figured out. But when I ask for those kind of details from uh, the factories, they typically rely heavily on their gut feeling of like, well, this toy looks this kind of complex. I think it should be worth around this much. Or at least that's what they told us. That's what they do. Such that uh, they give us a number. And then it's not until they actually produce the toy. They know the real cost. And then yep. um, and then they. that's why they had to readjust the price on Big Hex. Because they actually saw it cost more to do it. But um, I found that kind of odd because it was hard for me to negotiate with them. In terms of like, well, it, you know, I saw it, the last toy took 10 paint steps. And so I feel like each paint step was roughly three cents each. I saw that um, the cost of plastic is this much by ton. So each tour should be this much plastic. But obviously, I'm applying my own uh, understanding of their process. And therefore, it could be very wrong uh, in terms of what they actually have to do. So they're actually kind of very candid or not candid. That's opposite. Candid in the sense of like they're hiding their their um, their process or their payments or like how much things cost on their end. I guess ultimately to minimize our leverage to kind of argue with that approach that I was applying. So that's something you kind of have to watch out for in terms of um, negotiation. You kind of have to do a dance versus a you know objective kind of negotiation. But yeah, so I mean, I think I think the the biggest difference is like with uh, factories uh, and doing business in China, it's like it's more relationship based. So rather than them just coming up with a, an assessment that works for them and, and then sticking to that, um, the, it's more like, oh, we want to develop a relationship with this client. So we'll give them a good price now. And then on the next order, we'll try to increase it um, and, and try to make our profits back on, on, on the next production. Or we'll think of more efficient ways to produce the, the toy um, so we can cut down on production costs. Yeah. So that, and then that, that kind of creates a a weird situation coming from the West because you're like, well, you can't like, you can't justify increasing the per unit cost just because, you know, you already gave us this one per unit cost. Now you're saying that you want to increase it because you didn't give us the right quote in the first place. Like whose fault is that? But it's, it's more, it's more about the relationship thing in, in China. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, yeah, continue in terms of the, the workflow. I think it, the negotiation part is probably the biggest uh, most laborious Ted's like part or laborious interaction I have with um, the factory, which is definitely something that would be harder to do um, alone if I had to go straight to the factory because um, they would just probably have a, a, a like a brick wall or like a hard like line of like it's gonna be this much, take it or leave it. And um, yep. but having like a mediator such as SFA, it's easier to kind of talk both sides and. They know that they're not talking to the factory directly, so there's some level of bend that is available. Um, so I, I think it kind of helps build the relationship in a different way, where you kind of, uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't know. I, I feel like it would have gone differently because we'd be very defensive and like very hard on the numbers we want. Uh, but I guess you guys understand better how their negotiation culture is, and so yeah, you kind that, of translate that. Like- that's like most of, if you were to summarize my job, I mean, people say, obviously you say it's trading, sourcing company, whatever, but like the reality is what I do is I kind of manage expectations and try to bring both sides to the same understanding. So from my side, I understand, you know, where you guys are coming from, um, you know, because I'm from Canada, but like at the same time, having been in China for at that stage, I think it would have been two years and working with a bunch of factories and just understanding the way, again, it's a relationship-based um, business ethic. 
kind of like I, 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 you know, they messed up with the initial pricing, but we kind of have to work together because they're probably doing the fact she's probably doing other things behind the scenes to make sure that our product is coming out really good. And if we push them too hard on on certain things, then we're going to damage their relationship. And and then ultimately. Factories will find a way to cut costs, anyways. So. Yeah, that, that was one thing we were kind of worried about because because um, we didn't want to you don't want to push them too far be, until they have to become criminals to be profitable. So yeah, um, yeah. So like one thing too is because the whole thing with trust for me at least was to figure out um, how the process works and understand what's happening. Not so much that I want to steal their technology or whatever because that's not the business we're in, but more of like to make sure that they're doing what they're saying they're doing, et cetera. So one thing we really want to see was um, every paint step, like how is it being done? And uh, to have a better understanding of the whole process, as well as with the injection molding, um, like how is it done? Like how many pieces does it get? How many pieces get injected at the same time, et cetera? Like we know we're making X amount of molds, but we don't really know how that fits into the whole picture. So um, I, I guess when you're a big company like Apple or whatever, you can make your own factory. You can build your own factory effectively. And, set up the own culture. But if you have to work off of an existing factory with their own expertise, then you kind of have to play with by their rules or work with their processes and find a way to adapt it to yours. And and then again, that's where that business or like, yeah, business ideals can clash if you don't have a proper understanding of each other's way of conducting business. Yeah. So after we wrapped up the pricing and agreed on um, the payment terms, normally what we did was 30-70 or was it 50-50? I think one of the packaging was... was, Well, the packaging was 50% up front, 50% uh, efforts, and the mold mold was 50%. No, uh, mold was 100%, I think, up front. Mold was 100%? I don't know. I have to check my notes. Something was oh no paint maybe paint, maybe, paint maybe molds. the first time the molds. no no yeah, paint, no, paint molds were hundred percent yeah and then the molds were thirty percent and then seventy yeah so it was mostly thirty seventy but like on occasion like on some productions we've done fifty yeah percent uh, so, yeah so then one issue we had with um, payments were like the names had to be exact but then there uh, so like yeah the beneficiary name had to be exact but like this company had like more than thirty five characters in their name. And they cap at 35 characters for beneficiary. And, and so it's like a whole, like you say, that's another thing you have to make sure like the, uh, your payment beneficiary and payment bank information is very correct to make sure the payment goes through. Because there's a whole, um, I, I think at one point, yeah, we're, we're kind of all iffy and everything kind of feels tense when you have to make that big lump sum payment because you want to make sure it gets to the right person. But at the same time, um, yeah, so you want to be cautious enough to make sure that it gets the right person, but you have to do it quickly enough to make sure that they're not being delayed because of the payment, because they're not going to start mm-hmm. without the payment. So that was a funny like standoff thing that we kind of had to go through. So obviously, make sure you keep time or um, expect that they will wait for payment first before they start. And also, um, unless if you have prior work with them and they know that, that you're good for your money, they have on occasion worked before we actually even paid, which is kind of cool because they are committing to those deadlines and it's in their benefit to make sure they start earlier. Yeah, no, that was also a major thing in negotiation was was setting the the deadlines for for when the product was going to be ready versus when it ships out and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so once we made the payment of 30%, um, they acquired their materials and then it's it's kind of like technically it's technically uh, hidden from us what exactly happens um, on a day-to-day, but um, Rico or SFA would go and get updates from Nancy to see what's up with the latest um, state of the whole production. And so um, I think in terms of production itself, you can have a little breather for like one or two weeks before they actually finally start um, producing outputs. Because what they have to do is they actually have to injection mold um, the mold. I guess um, in terms of product development, I kind of messed that up. Because, um, yeah, there's a whole mold phase first that we have as a separate agreement where they make the mold and then they make samples of the toys coming out of that mold to make sure that it's meeting our specifications. They don't paint it or anything. We just want to make sure it dr- passes the drop test and all. Um, so, yeah. So yeah, they, there aren't major, you know, um, aesthetic defects as well. Yeah, exactly. No cavitation, et cetera. I, I guess to backtrack, so the first agreement we made is for the mold. And we do give the deposit payment for the for the actual casting mold. Uh, 
Yeah. The paint mold isn't done yet because we have to make sure that the shape of the the toy is its final form so that they can make the molds, paint molds off of those toys. Um, because there's no point in you know reworking those needlessly. So um so yeah, it takes roughly so just, a month. Yeah, I guess just to just to explain to people. So like when we talk about the the mold versus the paint mold, I've explained what a mold is. Uh so I think people should know from the podcast, but the paint mold is uh, essentially when you're when you're painting a toy or you're painting a, a product, um, they to make it the most efficient, they spray paint it. So there'll be the shape of, let's say we're talking about big hex, as we mentioned before, like he has like hexagons on his body that are gold. So they'll literally be like a metal, um, a metal, uh, metal like piece, a of, a piece of metal. Yeah, a stencil, a piece of metal, a metal stencil that has the shape of the hexagon. And then the guy, whoever is at the workstation, will put that over that hexagon and then spray painted gold. So that's all they're able to make sure that, you know, they're, they're painting the right areas and not like, um, it's not a, a, so much of a manual process, even though it's a little bit of a manual process. Yeah, and get, so crisp, yeah, and get the crisp, sharp lines, et cetera, that you would have to spend hours to do it by hand otherwise. Yeah, yeah so. Yeah, I mean, there were certain, there were certain parts of the product that had to be hand painted. Um, of, of some of the toys, which which is also a point of contention. Yeah, super expensive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, so it took around a 30, 40 days to do the the molds, and in that time, it, we're kind of hands off. They're like experts in doing it, so you kind of let them do their thing. Yep. Um, but they'll on top of building the mold, like uh, CNC machining it out, etc. Um, they will. Test do test pieces etc to make sure that the parts are coming out right to figure out what the pressures and temperatures needed are um, to make sure you get the form right. I think uh, you typically get cavitation if you don't hold it in for too long and you reduce the pressure too fast because then the plastic shrinks and then it warps and stuff and whatever. Anyway, that's again that's on them to figure out. Um, and then when they show you the products that they have, they glue it together to show with the glue they expect to use at the end. Such that it will ultimately um, pass, hopefully pass the drop test that you provide them, and also um, the benefit of also making the parts colored, which is obviously something standard apparently, is to make sure the glue is touching both plastic interfaces. Because if you have plastic paint, glue paint, and then plastic again, um, then the paint will actually just peel off, and then your parts can come off easily. So make sure when you do make your toys or products that if you're going to glue, make sure it glues. From plastic to plastic, so um, yeah, that's something that we kind of learned too along the way. After the forty days, uh, they give us the samples, and we did give them a condition where we need to have at least um, twenty to. I think it was twenty samples of just the unpainted ones, right? We had we we yeah. asked for a, a small amount to be made, and they said that's kind of stupid because uh, it's so little volume; it's not worth the time. Uh, but it's something that we demanded and um, because we were just we were, we're really firm believers of identifying problems earlier on because that saves costs later down the line and so um, we asked them to produce 20 samples of just the hard um, of the non-painted ones so that we can do a pull and drop test ourselves internally so that means they ship it out to Canada and um, that's how we did at least initially with Big Hex and then it came to a point where we trusted uh, SFA to do it because they saw how Big Hex was done and they had a good understanding of how, how they should apply it to their the new designs. So um, we actually bought them the pull test rig and then uh, the first pull test rig as well as the, um, I think that was it. So we bought SFA the first pull test rig because obviously it was an expense that was beyond uh, what they were expected to do. And uh, we thought it was really important and obviously it would save uh, shipping costs on our end. So it'd be better for them to just do it on their end. We obviously paid for their time to do it. Was it was it 20 samples or was it 50? Uh, I, I think the, when we did the second batch of toys, it was we did 20 toys of just the non-painted ones. And then the, the, the fully painted ones were like 50 samples. Yeah. And then we sent, well, we took out 20 or 30 to send to you guys or to test as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, well, actually, we tested some and then we sent five to you guys and then we also had to send some to SGS. Uh, yep. So, yeah, exactly. So once we confirmed that they passed on our end, uh, we sent it to SGS, who is a third-party certified like QA, QC testing company. QA, right? QA or QC? 
both. both but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, really, the the thing with SGS is that they it's a, it's a lab, so they can certify that yeah. um, you know that that the, the paint and the plastic used in the product are not lethal for kids. Yeah, which is important. And make sure they um, pass like the <laughs> the North American thresholds. Which we, yeah, exactly. Which we obviously knew we passed the physical drop tests and pull tests. So yeah, uh, manufacturing the molds, uh, how much time that takes, so it's 30 to 40 days. Uh, you're asking what's the process of working through um, another run. So 30 to 40 days for the mold, I think that's at that point we're discussing how they, yeah, after, they, after 30 to 40 days of making the molds, they send us samples that we can test before they even paint them to see if they are meeting our standards or expectations. Um, initially, you guys, initially, we, the, those toys were sent to us to test to meet, see if they met our standards and our way of doing the test because we didn't really trust uh, the factory to do, conduct the test to the degree of scrutiny that we would. Um, because, uh, yeah, I think that's that. <laughs> Afterwards, um, we oh, asked yeah, you so guys to run those I tests to save costs. You know the fifty samples, the inspection process with that. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Productions. Yeah, how we split up the fifty units. Um, I forgot the exact numbers, or I guess I could have looked that uh, up. It's, while it's, you're it's off, fine. It doesn't have to fine. be. It doesn't have to be specific because <laughs> every production is going to be slightly different. But yeah, so I think it was fifty yeah. units. I believe we took out about twenty. 25 for inspection at the factory and that those were like units that would be destroyed because we're doing pull tests and stress tests on them and then yeah. I think we took out I go but, ahead. but before yeah I was gonna say before all of that was tested we actually checked the paint quality of each toy to make sure that um, it's more of like to note what kind of defects are present and in what volume yep. or in what percentage so that we can expect uh, first of all we can see if they can address those paint issues if yep. they happen frequently and then the factory would be like, oh, yeah, sorry, this was a problem with this, or there's a problem with the, that person. And then it might actually get those people fired. But um, I mean, at the end, yeah. it's business. Yeah, I, mem- so. I remember, uh, I remember uh, pointing out <laughs> when I was there one time, I pointed out like some, some physical defect. Uh, I think it was like, I think it was something to do with glue. And then and Nancy came over and then like three other people came over and started scolding the the girl that was <laughs> and, the, and I was like yeah <laughs> and and showing yeah. her how to do it properly yeah. in front of I everyone like, I, I mean I didn't, <laughs> didn't have to be like that like I was just I was, just, I was like <laughs> could have could guys could have had an internal meeting afterwards like you know I didn't have to <laughs> yeah um, nah she was set as an example she was used yeah. as an example like the, yeah. the sacrifice yeah. So, um, so uh, yeah. So that's before you guys even do the physical tests, and then yeah, after that, you guys do the physical test. It's not technically internal to uh, SFA. Um, sorry, it's not technical to. Oh, what do I say? So technically, it's not um, internal to the factory, but internal in terms of it was done on site over there, so we didn't have to ship it, and it's, it was done like almost immediately, and then they can see any defects almost immediately. Because so um, that was. Because Imogen was doing those, no, right? at the time that would have been who was working on the project at the time, Sunny. I think it would have been. Would have oh, been Sunny, right, right, yeah, yeah or Sunny. Um, yeah. I, th- I think Imogen was working part time at, at that time, and I think she helped Sunny on, on a few occasions. Um, but yeah, Imogen was not like she she was not really working on Prodigy. Like she just used to help out from time to time with inspections. Um. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, so I think I think the breakdown was like obviously with any type of inspection, you want to the physical inspection, like the the sorry, the aesthetic inspection, is something that you can do really quickly. So you want to inspect as many products as possible, and then if you see a specific defect, look for that reoccurring, as as Brian, as you were saying, um, and then when we do the physical stress test. It's time. It's time intensive, so you can't really do you know a ton of units. You have to take a, a certain amount that you feel comfortable with. So I think with us, it was something like twenty to twenty-five units out of the fifty that we did a drop test and a pull test on. Um, and then from there, if we were you know we would send out five to ten units to Canada for you know Brian and and everybody to to have a look at um, and also do their own internal testing. And then if both tests passed. Then we would send five units to SGS as as well as like paint and 
um, non-painted uh, PVC samples so that they, SGS does that, um, the chemical testing um, and, you know, they do their own stress tests and stuff like that. And then they would give, they would give us a year or nay and then we could go into mass production. So, you know, the mass production was roughly 25 to 30 days. Um, when we were making multiple products at the same time, that was that was quite a bit of work because we would have uh, <laughs> like for the for the during production inspection we'd have like multiple. They might be like if we're producing like four toys, two of them might be ready for inspection now, and then you know the other two are ready like three days later or a week later. So we'd have situations where we go to the factory two days in a row. Uh, to do inspection on a couple of toys, and then we'd have to go back the next week to do inspection on, on you know the rest. So it was very time intensive, but at the same time, yeah. a lot of the stuff that we're doing with, you know, spending two days at the factory or doing a during production inspection, I think that's part of the reason why we were able to cut down the time from a year to six months on on you know the on four toys at the same time. Yeah, for sure. But also keep in mind how they manufacture those toys. Uh, we had four different products, and so they made um, that were being manufactured simultaneously. But the way they do it simultaneously is like they do two lines at the same time, and then they offset it. So um, w the first two would get started on yep. the injection molding, and then when those first two are done injection molding, the next two start getting injection molding completely. It's not like they yep. run all four in parallel. So that's why, like those multiple, like back-to-back -back days, were required to do um, those QC checks. Uh, the amount of work required ultimately was effectively like whether you do it in middle or all at the end of the thirty days. It's um, kind of like ultimately the same in terms of amount of work to validate. But uh, I think there was kind of a benefit to that too, where you can kind of get that. Um, like ultimately, the same amount of hours would have to be spent, but. Ultimately, you can kind of validate the first batch, first two batches, or the first two models you know, almost immediately after they're um, off that line, midway through that production period they yep. claim. So the so the second batch so, uh, uh, we did then, and that that production was was good. Were there any major defects? I think I think we just had some paint issues, right? Like uh, I think that was the only. Um, yeah, there was, there were always paint issues that we had, um, and they always kind of fix, fixed up on the second round. With uh, the PVC paint, apparently they are able to use a solvent mm -hmm. to kind of clean off the paint and redo them, so it wasn't like a complete loss. It's just that it did require a bit of extra manual work for them to touch up and such. But from a safety point of view, it was completely good, like fine. Um, only one of them maybe had an issue, but then again, the solution there was to kind of add more glue to the joints. Is that Firefox? they would be diligent in reworking those. Um, I think it was Arcturus. For sure, Big Hex had that issue where after we finished everything, they we wanted them to add even more glue yep. in the hips. Um, but uh, yeah, afterwards, I think in those other models, I don't recall too much exactly. I know Florfox, oh, we had an issue with the bug eye where the eyes looked a bit dopey. <laughs> yeah. um, and, the, and then we told them to fix it, but they're like, that's how it looked like in the in the model. And then we're like, yeah, that's I know it's true, but like we kind of want it to be fixed because we the pupils yep. have to be a bit bigger. And then uh, and then they did modify the mold. Um, part and it's, it's a good production. lesson to have again. It's like you think about when you have something that's a two D or three D drawing, like it looks one way on a computer, and then when you actually have the physical item, you know, produced and you're looking at it, it's like, oh well, doesn't quite look the way we thought it would look. You know, so if you work with a factory that is a little bit flexible, and at this stage we had a good relationship with with this factory, so they're able to you know make some tweaks here and there uh, without charging us more money or um, increasing the the production time drastically. Yeah, exactly. Like the the sentiment I got from is like, all right, whatever makes you yeah. happy, man. <laughs> like, so like, like after the negotiation has happened, um, it is like a balance between. Um, like they'll try to do whatever they can to make sure that you're happy, but if it comes at a too high of risk of them not meeting the targets they set out, then obviously they'll they'll ease back on like what they can help you out with with extra deliverables. Or you uh, a good negotiation tactic is like, oh, if you take an extra couple of days to kind of fix this, then they're more sometimes they're more than willing to take up that offer because um, it might not be that big of a change for them, but it gives them extra two days to do product run production, which is 
um, less overtime they have to pay or something like that and less strenuous on their whole yep. uh, production line. I think around this time uh, on the second batch, um, I, well, first batch with the with the with the four toys, but second batch with Big X. I think around this time is when I started to notice a little bit of the bottlenecks with with Nancy, um, just with her being extremely busy and starting to mm-hmm. uh, starting to like need because we're you know now it's five toys and there's way more investment, there's way more time involved, and we're trying to understand how they do their production. Um, so we can improve things in the future and make things more efficient. Um, and then we started yeah. to demand like them getting Nancy to have a, a full-time assistant. Um, so that's something that that can happen with factories is like when you're working with them for a while, you can start to make requests for things like that. You can start to ask for more information or you can start to, you know, if you need them to hire somebody who can work full-time on your project, um, you, can, you can start to request things like that. As as the relationship develops, yeah, that's true. I remember it. Was it Jessica? Yeah, something like that. So, yeah. um, for second batch was good, right? You receive it. You you receive that just before Christmas, or was it just after? Yeah, but we did. But like uh, the other, like how we did the first batch of Big X, we did have to pay overtime to kind of expedite yeah. that process, and so that that was kind of strenuous. Also, we did have an issue with um, the toy being packaged the wrong way. And it was kind of weird because uh, when it was packaged a certain way, someone questioned, like saying this, they don't think it's right. But then the uh, QC person was saying like, oh, no, it is supposed to be like this. But then obviously when I looked at it, I was like, no, it's wrong. But then um, like, or that's something you should be watching out for in terms of like if things come down to the wire too, like things can get a bit wonky. So you do have to keep a keen eye to make sure that uh, everything's crossed, like all the T's are crossed and dot I's are dotted to make sure that um, yeah, things are you want to have you want to have a buffer um, for QC. In fact, like I, I was just on a call earlier and I was just talking to one of my clients about that, and I was like, we we want to have you know two to three weeks between the end of the production and when we need to actually ship out the product because it's the first time that this product is being made, and if we're in a rush, then that's when things kind of fall through the cracks. Um, so you can have that situation where we were in a rush. I think that's the reason why we ended up hiring a QC company to help with our inspection. And then, you know, the factory itself said that they thought that the, you know, I think it was Nancy or somebody else on the, the line said that they thought that the toy was f- facing the wrong direction. And, and then the, the QC person who was doing the inspection said, no, it's fine. Um, so it's like things like that can happen. It's like, well, if we had more time, um, then instead of hiring a QC person to help, then it would just be the team which is familiar with the, with the product. And then also we wouldn't have to ship out the products immediately. So even if there was an issue like that with the toy facing the wrong direction, then we should be able to catch it before it ships. Um, but then even things like that, those are also learning experiences because I think what happened after that is we implemented the packaging, how the product should be packaged into the sales agreement, into the contract with with steps and pictures and, and things like that. So it's an ongoing process, especially with you you're working with a factory for two years. Um, you you kind of, you see issues, you, you try to anticipate everything, but there's some stuff that you can't anticipate. And then you implement that into your next order um, and, and you implement the steps and how to fix that and prevent those issues into your next order. Yeah. Hey guys, thanks for listening to part two. If you haven't listened to part one, it would be... Extremely weird that you're at the end of part two, but you got to go back and listen to part one of this ODM retrospective. Um, of course, if you want to check out the show notes at sourcefinasia.com slash made in China, check out the YouTube channel, sourcefinasia on YouTube for our latest and greatest videos. So part three of, of this ODM retrospective was similar to part two in the sense that we were talking about how we developed a relationship with the supplier and, and the systems. But it was a much more, it was again like a, f- a continuation of learning about, you know, having multiple production runs, having different products being made that have been made before, ordering those while ordering new products that are being designed and, you know, working with the factory more intensely and understanding the systems within the supplier to create a more efficient workflow. And to get your products on time, because one of the you know one of the main things that we had with the original design is trying to get them yeah. for Christmas, but not trying to order them too early. 
and trying to work within the factory systems in terms of holidays and their production schedule. So part three was that, and I think part three is also quite a bit of advice from Brian from a buyer's perspective in terms of what he learned about the entirety of doing business in China, um, working with with a consultant and then working with a factory. And for the most part, one thing you have to remember about about um, this project that we did with Prodigy is that they only came to China two times. Like Rohan came to China in, in the first eight months and then Brian came to China in the last year. So the, there was a good space of two and a half years where you know they didn't come to China. And even when Brian came to China in, in the last year, it was more just to see if they could speed up sample inspections. So enjoy part three when you have a chance. We'll see you guys next week. Lifestyle of the young black and genius. Sun strapped with guns, packing jeans. And the blunts got my lungs black and cheese. Yeah. Play with killers, hung at a slung crack for leisure. Uh. And tell a nigga run that, get gun clap for sneakers. Uh. Young niggas emulate what's coming out the speakers. Uh. So everything we learn came from rappers, not teachers. Cause if we can't relate, then how the hell you gonna reach us? Uh. Surrounded by crooked cops and preachers. Yeah. Who am I trusting? No time to think about illegal when your stomach's touching. By any means, nigga, even if the gun is busting. I see the world for what it is now I see the odds is looking slim for our kids now Cause uh, it wasn't set up for my people to rise My yeah. niggas slain, but I see the pain deep in they eyes Niggas living like they don't give a fuck And I don't blame them, it's a cold world Live it up, damn